Hi, and welcome to Book Club, a sales enablement pro podcast. I'm Olivia Fuller. Sales enablement is a constantly evolving space, and we're here to help professionals stay up to date on the latest trends and best practices so they can be more effective in their jobs. Creating predictable and scalable revenue is any business leader's dream, but how can that dream actually become reality? Well, as it turns out, there's a formula for building and sustaining a winning sales team. And I'm so excited to have Mark Robert, who is the author of the Sales Acceleration Formula, here to walk us through what that looks like. And so with that, Mark, I'd love if you could take a second and introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit more about your background and your book. Yeah, sure, Olivia. Thanks for having me. Um, so I am an engineer by training. Um, I started my career at coding. I uh, did an MBA at MIT. So like I had this like close to a decade start to my career in more of a data scientific, like quant background. And then um, after MIT, I had met the two co-founders of HubSpot there as classmates and was recruited in to be the fourth employee and first salesperson. And you know, with the aspiration to build, you know, a, a unicorn. And so, and took that on. So I, uh, this is in the early part of the century, like 15 years ago. And I don't know, I got, looking back, I'm pretty lucky that I had the background that I had and ended up in that company at that time, because little did I know that sales was going through a pretty substantial revolution, um, that we were moving out of this sort of pre-internet age where everything was kind of sold on an outside team and no one used their CRM and sales enablement barely existed. And we were moving into an era where CRM adoption was necessary for salespeople to do their job. These tech stacks were becoming pretty advanced. We had a lot of data. We had internet empowered buyers who really just changed the way that sales had to interact with them. And it was sort of like, the perfect time for a quant with no sales background to build a sales team from scratch. And so I was like blessed to fall into that role and blessed to be surrounded by the right, like executive sponsorship and mentorship and investor advisement um, to, to be successful in it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my background. So like I did that for like 10 years, we took it IPO in like 2015 or 16, something like that. I, rested and joined the faculty at Harvard Business School where I still teach. I joined there full-time and helped build out the sales curriculum there. I teach a couple classes in sales and growth. And uh, more recently, after a couple years of investing and advising and sitting on boards and that kind of stuff, um, I was uh, approached by a former Bessemer investor to start a venture capital firm called Stage 2 Capital, which I'm happy to speak about at the end, but it's the first uh, first VC firm that's run and backed exclusively by CROs, CMOs, CCOs from a lot of the software unicorns that are out there. We're back about 400 CROs and CMOs uh, from like Snowflake and Salesforce and Atlassian and Zoom and those types of companies. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to have a chance to, you know, learn a little bit more about your book. And, you know, you mentioned that your background is really unique in the sense that you do have such a quantitative lens that you take. And your book really walks through that framework of driving predictable and scalable revenue growth from that lens of being really data-driven. And mm -hmm. you also talked, you know, about how... Um, Sales has evolved a lot since you started that journey of creating that framework and even since you know you did write the book. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about you know what are some of the challenges that you've seen emerge in the last few years that can make that mission mm. of achieving predictable and scalable revenue a little bit more difficult to achieve in today's landscape. Sure. Yeah, when I wrote the book at the end of the HubSpot journey, it was really triggered by, um, uh, I was just, I, I would just like, HubSpot started to get pretty well known and I would get calls from different sales leaders and entrepreneurs starting out with the same questions. Like, what do you look for in your first sales hire? How do you set up your first sales comp plan? Like, how do you sell, enable your sales team? They'd, and just, I told them how we were doing at HubSpot and they'd write me back like a month later. Wow, we did that and it worked really well. Thank you so much. So it was it was kind of like, this is working. Let me just put it down on paper for people. I mean, I get, I give all the proceeds to a nonprofit. So it was just kind of like help out the ecosystem. And, um, a lot, even to this day, it sells almost just as much every year than it did the first year. So I'm, I'm very you know, humbled that people still pick it up and still find the amazing implementation of it. Like my own models of it have not changed, but evolved a bit because that at that time I was like 80 hours a week deep on just HubSpot and wrote it about that. And now I've applied it to a thousand different data points between my teaching and investing and consulting. And, but it's a lot of the principles still apply. Um, I would say you said the challenges of implementing, I guess I'll answer it this way. And this is something that the, the book itself didn't address, but you can read the book and then uh, you can read some of my more recent work. The book just talks about the the model as it was at that point. And it doesn't talk about the order in which you should implement things. And mm -hmm. that was like, that's been my most recent work is while the book gives you an aspiration of like where you want to go, how you hire, how you enable, how you coach your sales team. There's a There's a pretty precise order in which you build that system. And in fact, the optimal answers for each of the system components, like let's take hiring, for example, changes as you progress from a five-person company that's mostly a product team to a 20-person company that's really in sales mode to a 2,000-person company that is a very complex organization with, with alignment requirements. Your hires obviously change even on just the same frontline account executive role so so that's probably the difficulty is understanding the order in which you build the components of the system and how the individual component optimal design changes as you evolve yeah yeah 
Absolutely. That's very interesting. And yeah. I think definitely something that goes beyond, you know, the, the scope of the book too, which is fantastic. Um, I would love to dig into the data component of the mm -hmm. framework. Um, tell me a little bit about just the role that you see data really playing today in helping business leaders be able to gather the insights that they need to overcome some of these challenges that they're facing today. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's kind of funny. And this is like, right in the heart of like sales enablement and rev ops and, and just sales leaders in general. So hopefully a lot of the folks that are out there listening, it's, I always kind of joke that, or just, I guess, observe that sales is a function, something that's extraordinarily unique relative to like product engineering, HR, finance, marketing, even is success and failure in the role is so quantifiable. Mm. You know, like it's it's really hard to like walk into a company and and here's our engineers and this is Olivia, our number one engineer by 7%. Like it's really hard to claim that, right? Yeah. But I can definitely work, walk into a sales floor and say, here's our salespeople and this is Olivia and she's our number one salesperson by 7%. That's like a feasible statement. And so you've got this function where like, success and mediocrity and failure is quantifiable. And that opens up tremendous opportunities in the way we run the team. It opens up tremendous opportunities to draw correlations between hiring attributes that we're looking for and how strongly they correlate to success in the role. It, it presents um, opportunities for us to use data in our sales playbooks um, to understand um, which approaches to the market um, lead to the most success and, and, and best outcomes. It presents opportunities for us to measure the effectiveness of our frontline managers and how effective they are at coaching and developing our people to be able to literally say like, Olivia is a rock star, but I really think that she can develop in the area of sense of urgency development with her prospects. And in fact, I can quantify it. Like I know what she looks like relative to our best in class people where her stage four, like demo stage opportunities are converting to customers at a rate of 27%. And I know with the right amount of coaching, she should be able to get that at 35%. And that's going to translate into an additional $120,000 of quota attainment on her part and a rise in our productivity. Like that's the level of discussion we can be at. And that's like really difficult to, to enable at other, in other functions. So that, that gives you a little bit of an overview of the application and usage of data in, in our world. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I want to go back to kind of that first tactic that you talked about. Um, mm. And you mentioned it in a couple of examples here around uh, sales hiring and mm. really the importance of standardizing what those characteristics are that you're looking for in your company and making sure that you're having kind of a consistent approach to hiring for those criteria. Mm. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of your best practices for really getting buy-in on those characteristics as being the right characteristics characteristics to look at and really reinforcing that consistency in the hiring process. And in particular, how can data really help in that aspect? Sure. 
what I'm going to talk about is not necessarily like the absolute world class, but it's like, it's, I think, a, a step up that's easy to conceptualize and rarely followed. And when it is followed, it translates into dramatic um, acceleration in the performance of the team. Uh, world-class hiring is studied at the psychology level, psychographics, and there's some great tools out there like predictive index, et cetera. And, you know, I've spoken to world experts on it. And sometimes it's like, some of them will admit that it might not be worth it to like take, take it to that level. But where we are, what we see in the industry is not a very good approach. And, and it comes out in the, in the aggregate numbers, like it depends on which study you, you read, a lot of them tend to center around a, uh, an average turnover rate in sales annually of 40%. That's really bad. Mm-hmm. Every year, 40% of salespeople change jobs either because they fail, they're fired, or they fail and they quit, or they're just like not happy with their company. And it's really hard to build a business when you're turning over 40% of your team every year. So we've got tremendous quantifiable ROI. You know, there are some trainers out there that claim that the cost of a mishire in sales is over a million dollars. And it's not that hard to justify that that calculation. And so what I hope we can do is try to move away from the, like I'm busy in my day and I'm running all over the place. And I have this interview with Olivia and two minutes before I walk into the room, I read your resume. I sit down and I'm like, Hey, Olivia, tell me about your, tell me about your career. Like, Oh, I liked Olivia. Let's hire her. Or I didn't really like her. Let's not hire her. That's where we're at. That's where most people are hiring at. And all I'm trying, you know, all I work on people with and it, it, and it changes their game is, hey, can we just sit back and, and just like think about the attributes that we see in our best people and the attributes that we see in the people that don't work out? And can, we, can we translate that into just a quantifiable scorecard? Can we identify like the seven, eight, nine, ten attributes that we've seen correlate with success and failure? Can we take the time to define in two or three sentences what each one means? So we're very clear about what consultative selling means, what work ethic means, what intelligence means, what coachability means. Can we take the time to quantify what a, a high score of like an eight to 10 would be like, what a medium score of four to seven would be like, what a low score of one to three would be like, so that like a new sales manager going into their first interview can like actually know what the heck they're doing, like what they're asking and how they're scoring this person. And over time, we can actually see correlations with, um, you know, our scorecard and success and failure. That, that's where we need to get to. It's not a hard leap. It takes an hour to put together and a little bit of discipline to execute. But that allows you to get closer to a 10 to 20% annual turnover as opposed to the average of 40%. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I love that approach. And I think you're so right. It's about just really defining what, you know, success and failure does look like in particular companies. And I think a lot of that also nurturing that success a little bit longer term after, you know, a salesperson is hired and is in their career with a company. A lot of that comes down to sales training. And that's an area where enablement can really help. Mm, I'd love to hear your thoughts on maybe what some of the common pitfalls are mm. that you've seen and how programs are designed and delivered that may actually prevent that scalability and predictability. And then what are some of the ways that enablement can help to overcome some of those pitfalls? 
Yeah, I would say the number one one is um, we know today something that we've talked about anecdotally. We know for sure through the work of Gone.io and some of these new AI tools that the salespeople that listen more than they talk on the first call are the top performers in the industry. And the salespeople that talk more than they listen on the first call are performed in the least way. And part of that driver of why certain salespeople decide to speak more than and then listen on the first call is due to and the approach by enablement to training. Some enablement teams like look at a new feature or product that's being released, whatever, and take what I'd call an inside out approach of like, okay, what does this product do? What are its feature and benefits? Let's put together a sales deck and then let's show the sales deck to the sales team. Sounds pretty logical. But that's teaching the sales team to pitch. That's mm -hmm. teaching the sales team to talk a lot. That's teaching the sales team just to like go find 50 prospects in a month and just show the sales presentation. And that's my job. And that's completely wrong. Mm -hmm. The job is to start off and build trust and develop open-ended questions with the buyer to understand their perspective, to see what they perceive as their problems, to see if their problems are something we can help with. And if they are, to tailor our pitch to those problems so they really resonate with their context. That's what true selling is. And that's what our job and enablement is, is like to help a 25-year-old figure out how to do that. And so it starts not with like, what is our product and what are the feature and benefits and let's build a pitch deck. But it's more like, who is the buyer and what's the narrative going through their head before they even know what our product is? How do they just, what, what are the common problems they have? What are the ones that we're good at solving? How do I ask the questions to uncover that? And once I understand their perspective, how do I customize and tailor the description of our product so it resonates with that buyer so they understand how we solve those problems? And so a couple of tactics I'll throw out there is number one, how much of your enablement and training for new hires is about your product versus your buyer? Like most people I talk to is like, shoot, you know what? Like now I think about it, like, 90% of our training is how our product works. Well, you're teaching your salespeople how to be bad salespeople. Mm -hmm. can, can you spend more time in your training getting your salespeople to walk in the day in a life of you, the people they sell to? Like at HubSpot example, most of our sales training was just having our salespeople write blogs and do social media and create landing pages and create marketing automation sequences. Like we turned them into marketers. Yeah. So that they, when they got on the phone with their first marketer or business owner that was trying to do this new age way of marketing, they could empathize with what that scariness was like and talking through it as a peer. So like, can we do that? Whether we're doing network infrastructure or selling lab equipment, like there's always ways for us to like get our salespeople to understand our buyer. And then the second tactic I'll say is like, Instead of making the cornerstone of your sales enablement playbook the pitch deck, make the cornerstone of your sales enablement playbook the buyer's journey. Mm -hmm. Like what, what's going through their head at the awareness stage when they're trying to define their problem? Once they've defined their problem, what are the different options they're looking at to solve it? And once they know which option they want to choose, how will they make that decision? Let's teach our salespeople about that and define it. And after every single first call, our managers can say one question, which is like, where are they in the buying journey? That will force your salespeople to be 
top performers, to be discovery consultative oriented sellers that first and foremost understand the context of the buyer. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's fantastic. It goes right into what my next question mm. was going to be, which was around creating that culture of coaching. And you mentioned yeah. a little bit the role that sales management can play and, you know, helping to reinforce some of those behaviors with reps. But I'd love to dig into that aspect a little bit more and really hear how sales managers can leverage data to really have more effective coaching conversations. Yeah, yeah. Like most managers i think do fall into a pitfall which is the the month or quarter is going along we're not quite at our goal we've got a couple of reps that are struggling and they'll say all right here's what we're going to do olivia get me invite me to your next five meetings and i'll do the demos for you i'll run the meetings and they become super reps yeah. a lot of things wrong with that number one you're not holding your rep accountable to their job number two they get lazy Number three, they lose confidence because you're you can do it better than them. So a lot of bad things happen. And really that's not our job as a manager. I understand why they do it because that's how they got successful as a rep. But as a manager, our job is to hire and coach. That's what it is. And it's up to the rep to succeed. And so, you know, the, the thing with coaching is like, you can't coach a rep on like 20 things at a time. It's just not humanly possible to like absorb that coaching you can do one maybe two things at a time and that's really what the best coaches do is they get a new rep out of training you know usually there's like a pretty sizable list of like improvement areas and a good coach will say i can't work on all that at once but here's the one thing i'm going to work on and they'll use the data to diagnose that and so that's like usually if we have basic data of like how many how many leads are we creating every month how many become an opportunity how many become a stage three opportunity, whatever, how many become a close, we can get some visibility of like what the blueprint is for our top performers and the average and where we're off. And that will help understand where we can at least look to diagnose things and figure out what the issue is. And then what I like to do as a leader is I like to review on the first day of the month, all of my managers coaching plans with the reps. Mm. And when I do that review, it forces the managers to have one-on-ones before our meeting like in the morning or the day of the first day of the month to have that one-on-one -on -one coaching plan creation and schedule the coaching into the upcoming month. So if Olivia, if you and I were talking and after reviewing your data together and talking qualitatively about your past month, we do determine that sense of urgency development is the thing we want to work on. Then I'd say, great. Like, why don't you, why don't we get together on Friday at three next Tuesday at nine and the following Wednesday at noon and you show up to that meeting with a recorded first meeting and we'll listen to it together and look at it through the lens of sense of urgency development. That's a beautiful start to the month where I've like, I'm have confidence that my managers have had that discussion with their reps and we have an entire set of coaching calls set, you know, based on data that are attacking the skills that represent the biggest improvement for our team. Absolutely. That's a fantastic approach as well. You know, I, 
I have just one last question for mm -hmm. you, and it's really around the last tactic in the formula, which is mm. demand generation. And I think a key piece that stood out to me in the formula here was really around the importance of accountability between sales and marketing teams. And I, I'm curious about this in particular because sales enablement can often really be, you know, a function that's kind of in the middle of those two teams, sure. either a liaison between them or, or helping to kind of bridge that gap. Um, but I'd love to hear, you know, your advice on how enablement leaders can really be that bridge in helping sales and marketing teams develop and, and have that mutual accountability. Yeah, there needs to be a service level agreement between the two groups. And it's going to take a combination of the CEO plus enablement to create that. And, you know, one, we just really need the VP of marketing and the VP of sales to agree on their deliverables to each other. We need, mm -hmm. we need them to both agree what is an MQL and how many do we need from marketing and we need the sales team to agree to like, if we do get an MQL, how will we act on it? Like how quickly we'll call it, how frequently we call it and what kind of conversion rate do we expect out of that? And that's our goal. All of that leading to revenue. And so um, that's really the role of sales enablement is to work with the CEO and the sales and marketing leader to create that quantitative agreement. And one, one area that you can start with, there's a lot of different pieces to this, but Usually when we're putting together annual plans, and this is pretty relevant to today here in, in, in Q4, um, we're pretty good at like saying, all right, we want to go from like whatever, 20 million to 30 million, which means we need to add 10 million top line. And last year, our reps averaged half a million in productivity each. So I do the math and I have 10 of them. Well, that adds up to $5 million. I need to hire another 10 more and that will give me my 10 million. We're pretty good at that like bottoms up analysis from the rep capacity standpoint mm -hmm. rarely do we do the marketing piece right so it's like yeah i get that my reps are producing five hundred thousand, but how are they getting there well if you kind of look back on the year you can be like oh my gosh well half of our revenue came from marketing and marketing had a budget of a million bucks they generated a thousand leads so our cost per lead was a thousand dollars if i have my math right and 20% of those leads became SQLs and 40% became opportunities and 40% closed. So just using those numbers, I can figure out like, if we're going to have another year where half of our new revenue comes from marketing, I can calculate precisely how many MQLs I need. And then similarly, like half of our leads came from our cold calling team, the SDRs, and on average, each one set 210 appointments last year. The conversion to opportunity was 30% and the conversion to close was 20%. So immediately I can figure out like how many SDRs I need each quarter and what those conversion rates need to be. We don't do that math. It's simple math. And that's where sales enablement can play a big role. It's just like, let's go back to the leadership team, the, the house of sales, the head of marketing, the board, and just say like, here's the plan. This is the blueprint to get there from the demand gen side. And that helps both sales and marketing to, to have a quantitative route in what that service level agreement between the two groups can be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think, it, you know, in addition to that, it also helps enablement kind of prove their impact to those sure. executive leaders and be able to get a seat at the table in those conversations as really that strategic liaison between those leaders. So that's fantastic advice. I, it's I love such that. an important seat, you know, because everybody else naturally has a little bit of political bias in the equation. And sales enablement can be that sort of like unbiased judge and jury that's just trying to educate everybody on the truth 
-hmm. And they just know that these are like semi-scientists that are like helping us understand our business and hit our goals for next year. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Mark, well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I, I certainly learned a lot from this conversation. So thanks again. And I can't wait for our listeners to hear this. You bet, Olivia. Thanks for having me. And to our audience, thanks for listening. For more insights, tips, and expertise from enablement leaders, visit salesenablement.pro. And if there's something you'd like to share or a topic that you'd like to learn more about, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you.